Welcome to the Husband Material Podcast, where we help Christian men outgrow porn. Why? So you can change your brain, heal your heart, and save your relationship. My name is Drew Boa, and I'm here to show you how. Let's go. Today's interview is with Kathy Lurzel, the co-founder of the Allender Center, who has so much wisdom to share. Today, you will learn about heartache. You will learn about the specific ways that we are broken. And then even more beautifully, the specific ways that redemption can happen in our lives. We will talk about what to do if you feel like you don't have any trauma in your life. We will talk about arousal and how that is so much bigger than sexuality. And we will talk about healing, specifically what each of us needs to heal and how we can grow into men who bring healing to others. Welcome, Kathy. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. So Kathy is the co-author of an awesome book called Redeeming Heartache, How Suffering Reveals Our True Calling uh, with Dan Allender. And you have a big role to play at the Allender Center. I do. Well, I, I co-founded it with Dan um, about 12 years ago. And and so Dan and I um, have been working together for about 17 years, but but doing the work at the Allender Center for 12. So it's been really a sweet journey. It has been amazing for me just to get introduced to your world. And I can only imagine how many amazing stories have come out of 17 years. I I mean, and and none more amazing than than my own journey towards healing. Um, and so I think part of what we love about the Allender Center is the idea that you cannot take anyone further than you're willing to go yourself. And so each of us have a role to play in our own healing and um, and really have no business speaking of the healing of others until we're willing to take on the radical commitment to our own work. Can you say a little bit more about what that's looked like for you? Sure. When I showed up to grad school 17 years ago, I, I attended the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology back in the day, which is you know where the Allender Center has been birthed out of. And, um, and when I got there, I, if you had told me that I had trauma stories in my past, I would have told you you were crazy. Um, I was so disconnected from the reality of what my world had been because I, I, I did have some capital T trauma. So when we talk about trauma, there are kind of two categories that we look at. Big T trauma, capital T trauma, which is, you know, sexual abuse, um, uh, you know, physical violation, um, you know, car accidents that, you know, like big things that we would say, oh, for sure, that's trauma. But then there's little t trauma that is more subtle and harder to name. It's more like gas, right? And so it's like, it's in the air, you're breathing it in. But if you had to say like, this is what's happening, it's harder to identify because it's, it's more subtle and you have to use different senses to understand it. Where big T trauma is like an elephant in the middle of the room. Those are different categories that we look at. And so for most of us, you know, we can identify our big T trauma, but often that's easier to deal with than our little T trauma. And so a lot of my personal work has been uncovering those nuanced, small things that I've wanted to cover over in my life and move on from and just keep, you know, keep going, build around. Um, and, and that has been my journey is to go back and be willing to settle my body enough to be able to look at some of those smaller things that have really impacted who I am in the world today. And, you know, for me, and, and I think a lot of people who have done story work, there's this sense that, you know, we, we come into these situations wanting to fix the present 
And we have maladaptive behaviors that we're like, I want to get rid of this. This isn't good. This is impacting my relationship. This is impacting my parenting, my work, my joy, my goodness in this world. So I want to fix it right now. And so we get into therapy or we start reading books and you, but you, most of us don't actually want to do the hard work of understanding that you cannot fix the present or have hope for the future without going back to the past. And so a lot of my work um, that has saved my life and the work that I do in the world now is to help people go back to those past things and start to connect the dots to understanding how you got to where you are because you cannot, you can't just fix it by, you know, like something on your wrist that you're punishing yourself every time you think about something that you wish you weren't thinking about or promising your wife that you're not going to rage at her anymore. You know, like you can't, that's not going to happen um, just by like a cognitive switch. You have to actually go back and heal. Trying harder is just a losing battle. And I think a lot of us have a sense of that. Like we're miserable. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, how many times have I tried to like, you know, figure out a workout regime that I'm going to actually stick to? Like I have a Peloton sitting in my my room, my, my upstairs bedroom that I haven't used in like six months. Well, why? Because that's directly related to my relationship with my body. And I'm doing that work. I'm working on it now, but that's also directly connected to my arousal structures, where I've experienced abuse, where I've turned on my own body, where I'm ambivalent. You know, so it's like that Peloton is never going to get used. It could be used for like three to six months, or I've I've done workout regimes for like a year at a time. It never sticks because it's not actually going back to looking at the problem. And it sounds like you were someone who thought to yourself, I grew up in a good family. My parents loved me. Yeah. Absolutely. I have a, you know, I have a great family and, and I love them and we're still very close and they're broken and I'm broken. And my, my, my kids are going to need to be able to look at how I've harmed them and how I've impacted their styles of relating. You know, it's like, we're, if we're all aware of the fact that we are sinners, we all struggle with lust and murder. None of us are exempt from it. Um, it really levels the playing field in a sense where you can actually get really honest about your struggles and who you are in this world if you realize you're not alone. And scripture is super clear. Like the stories of scripture, people are a freaking mess. <laughs> I mean, it, and, and God doesn't sugarcoat that. Like if I were God, I would be like, mm, don't really need to put that part in scripture. Like that makes us look bad. You know, I mean, I, I have like a communications background. Like, do, can we spin the story so we're not talking, you know, quite that honestly about Moses and, you know, I mean, like Moses never gets to go to the promised land because at the end of leading these like honorary, awful pe people who are, you know, so self-righteous and, you know, at the end, he like hits a rock with his staff because he's angry and God is like, you're out. That is awful. And that is what life is. And I think there's something so beautiful about that and so freeing because it's like, look, we're not alone. So why are we trying to pretend that we're not so broken, but also meant to bring such goodness to the world and God can still use us? Like, why are we so afraid of that narrative? So anyways, that's my soapbox. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. I get the sense every time I engage with something from the Allender Center that I am way more broken than I thought. And also way more beautiful than I thought. Yes, both are true. How can that happen? <laughs> I know. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs>
Yeah. I think it's, I think it's the, the true freedom of the gospel. I, I actually think that this is what we're meant to encounter. And the more we can hold both, the more we live in that tension. And we're not either living in, in like object cynicism or blind optimism. And, and both are true, right? So I think so much of the church is we don't want to actually live in that tension of seeing our own faces, seeing our own brokenness, seeing where we impact and what that means. But we also are terrified of the beauty and the goodness that we're meant to bring into this world. And I don't, I actually think most of us are more terrified of the beauty and what we're meant to create and how we're meant to love, that's more scary for us and more difficult to look at than our abject brokenness. Both are important, but you have to look at both. It is easier for us to talk about our sin and our flaws and the ways that we are really messing things up. That's actually kind of easier than for me to make eye contact with another man, for him to tell me how he sees Jesus in me, to receive that kindness is the hardest thing. Yes. Well, and you notice even in scripture, right? When Jesus encounters people, they fall apart because of his love. It's not conviction. It's not a sense of like, you know, you're a horrible sinner and guilting you into something. It's that they feel the love of God, the living God rolling through their bodies when they engage with them, and it changes them on a neurobiological level. And that's what, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And it's not because of guilt, it's the sense of how deeply we are loved. That's that's something that I can get behind. Like, you know, the guilting people and shaming, it's like, gosh, that doesn't work doesn't work. And we know that. I mean, you know, there's tons of research coming out now around, there's a, there's a theory in um, psychology that's called uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. And, and now we know it doesn't work. Not long-term. It can work for moments. Like if there are specific maladaptive behaviors that we need to fix because they're destructive or, you know, you need help with that. It's like that, that can help in a moment, but it's the deeper psychological connection and work that actually changes the human mind and its relationship and connection. So what was harmed in relationship gets healed in relationship. And that is, that is an awful paradox that I don't understand and feels cruel and yet it's the very essence of who God has made us to be. Um, a- Adam needed Eve. We need connection. I love how you said it. We need the love of God to roll through our bodies. Wow. And he created us that way. So when we don't experience that and when we still long for it or, or actually turn against our longing for it, You've introduced me to this word, heartache, and redeeming heartache. Uh, What is heartache? So the way we define heartache in the book, we talk a lot about the idea of shalom. And so the way we we start any of our work at the Allender Center is the idea that we are built for Eden. We're built for shalom. And what shalom is, is perfect connection with God, with self, with others, and with the earth. That's what we're built for, right? And so, but we live in a fallen world where Eden isn't available to us. So we're stuck in these bodies, 
in these memories and in, in our DNA that is built for this this perfect connection and and peace, right? Shalom is really peace. Like our bodies are at peace. We're in synchronicity with the earth, with each other. Like there's flourishing and goodness. That's that we have an internal memory of what that is. And then we're born into a world where we are broken, the world is broken, and that shalom gets shattered pretty quickly. And we start to adjust. And so when I talk about heartache, it's that gap between what we're meant for and what we encounter. Anything in that gap ends up being heartache. And it's not to say that we're ever going to get back to Eden, right? You know, we can't. And and we're not dead yet as, um, what was it? Uh, Monty Python, the Holy Grail. I'm not dead yet. Right. So anyways, I've, that, that ages me, but it's fine. Um, your audience can now look at it. Uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, everyone. Um, but, you know, we're, we're not dead. And so what, is, what are we meant to do on this earth? And, and on the earth, we have to recognize that, that we are, we're experiencing heartache all the time because we have this body memory of what we're meant for. And, and that, sh- that, that breaks our hearts. And it, and it breaks us in a sense of despair and despondency and powerlessness and ambivalence and betrayal, like all of these big feelings and big experiences that show us the world isn't safe and, it's, and we're not going to really get what we need. Um, and, and, then, and so then what? How do you handle that? And a lot of us then create styles of relating to protect ourselves from what we experience as, as broken. And broken can be very subtle, it can be extreme, but all of it is a brokenness. And so how, so the heartache is that sense of, can we recognize that we will never really be loved the way we're meant to be loved? And that will break our hearts, but can we actually move into grief around that versus creating these protective mechanisms to say, well, I just, I won't expect to be loved. I, I don't want, you know, I, I'll, harden my heart. I'll just protect myself. I'll lower my expectations, right? Like all of these defensive structures that we do to survive, which are adaptive behaviors based on the world that we're living in. The question is then as adults, those become maladaptive behaviors where then we're, we're, it's harder for us to be in relationship. Intimacy is more difficult, right? And I think a lot of porn addiction is actually uh, like issues with intimacy. <laughs> like you're terrified of being known, you long for arousal and, and the release of that, but to do that on a face-to-face level with a partner is actually terrifying, terrifying for, for your body, for your soul. And it's also deeply connected to places in your story where you were asked to have arousal structures based on things that were not for your good. And so you don't understand your own body and like how that got built into your neurobiology, right? Because that happens at a young age. So anyways, we're getting into more stuff that I don't know if you want to get into or not, but it's, it's all interconnected. And so I think redeeming the heartache means going back and understanding that, allowing ourselves to grieve the loss of Eden, but then to say, but the story's not over and we're not just meant to hold on until we die. Like we're actually meant to do something here on earth, on earth as it is in heaven. We're meant to create beauty and goodness here on the earth. Like we're never going to fully redeem it. We're never going to be fully redeemed, but that doesn't matter. Like we're meant to, to do our best, not to be perfect, but to bring beauty 
and bring goodness and figure out what we're meant to create, what we're meant to bring flourishing to, even if that is making the best beef brisket you can in a smoker. Like that brings glory to God and everyone else around you. <laughs> but it's it's really that simple, right? And so then there's a sense of evil is working to mar, to destroy, to keep us from being able to do that. And I think that guilt and shame, especially around porn, does that really well for in, in a tragic way. Exactly. And I love the way that in the book, Redeeming Heartache, you have helped us simplify the process of seeing how the past is influencing the present and some of what happened to us. And you talk about the orphan, the stranger, and the widow. Yeah. Um, so for me, a lot of what's helped me as I've grown into my story is having archetypes or characters that help me connect my story to kind of universal stories. And I think that's also why scripture is is written the way that it is. It's written in story. It's written in archetypes and characters, right? And so what, what we looked at were the three biblical categories of the least of these, the, the parts of society that scripture points out over and over and over again that are the most vulnerable, the most abused, um, uh, the, the, and, and the most need of care. And scripturally, those, those categories are the orphan, the widow, and the stranger. And so what we explore in the book is this sense of how do these three core wounds impact our style of relating? So how, do, how does the orphan wound show up and, and how does that get created in your family of origin? And then what does that mean for how you operate in your life? So the core wound for an orphan is the idea that you're alone and that no one is coming, like no one's coming. And so it's up to you to care for yourself and to create protection and order and goodness. Um, be, and if you actually need something that someone else can give you, it's dangerous and puts you in a vulnerable position because now you can be exploited or you're going to owe someone something. And what you've learned is that that's not safe. So the, you know, the orphan wound from, from being a kid then gets translated into being an adult. And you have a very hard time resting connecting, um, uh, having, having intimacy, needing from other people in a way that, that offers freedom. Um, and so, so the book kind of lays out like, okay, so how do you understand your orphan wound and where it may have come from, but then also how do you understand how that plays out in the day-to-day -day life? So would it be really common for somebody dealing with the orphan wound to feel like I'm too needy? Yes. And then also that I can't trust other people with my needs. Totally. What a bind. And here's the deal is that the orphan is too needy, quote unquote, for what they can offer themselves. And so what you're, what you're coming up against is that your commitment is I can only need what I can give myself. Well, turns out we need more than that. We can't, we can't just offer ourselves everything we need. We need connection. We need relationship. We need goodness between, between us. And, and, and that's terrifying for the orphan because they know that that just sets them up for more harm. At least they think they know that in their body, right? Because that's the body memory from what was true as a kid. And so now, you know, you may actually have an opportunity to have good mutual relationship with another person, but your body is telling you, no, 
your body is like putting up all the signals. Your subconscious is putting up blockers and saying, I don't, I can't need from you. And then when people are offering the need, you're like, um, no, thank you. Cause I don't trust it. I don't trust it. So, you know, I mean, for the orphans, like think about what it means for you when someone really comes through and gives you a gift or, or shows up when you're sick or, um, you know, does something that's really meaningful for you. Somebody calls you just to check in on how you're doing. Right. What do you do? Like, I'm asking, Drew, what do you do when someone does that? How do you feel? I feel a little bit suspicious. <laughs> you know? Yes. And that is the exact word. So as we've worked with the orphan wound, that is the word that comes up for people more often than not, is I'm suspicious of good care. And so it's like, you'll receive it, but you're always waiting for the other shoe to drop. Like what's going to be required of me based on receiving something from you? So no gift is free. And that, is, and that sets an orphan up for hypervigilance, for exhaustion, and for never being able to rest into good care. And, and that is problematic if what you're looking for and what you're trying to establish in your life is mutual, kind, good connection. Because you're always having one hand out that's like, I don't know. And then when that person does fail you, which happens inevitably, there's also this sense in you that's saying, ha, I knew it. I knew I shouldn't have trust you. I knew this was going to come back and bite me in the butt. So I, I won't trust again. And now you're making more vows. So what does the orphan need to know? So the orphan, really at the core of who they are, they need attunement. And what attunement is, is good, safe reading of what you need and where you are and someone being able to, to meet you in a, in a connected gaze. And so you find attunement with, with mothers, fathers, and, and children, like they're reading their baby's bodies and their cries and their understanding. And they're looking at them knowing like, you can't be responsible for your own soothing because you are young. And so I will connect with you and attune to your need and then meet your need. That's attunement. Um, we need that as kids. Most orphans don't receive that well as children. And so oftentimes that's misused, that's mistreated, or it's like, I'll attune to you, but then I'm going to ask you to attune to me back, right? so often with little boys and their mothers who their mothers are not in good relationships with their fathers or partners then, or single moms, you know, they'll, they'll triangulate. That's the word we're, we're talking about with their little boys because their boys now meet their needs. So now a little boy who's meant to be attuned to is now attuning to his mother and knows that that's not right. Like, you know, somewhere in your system, this isn't the way it should be. It feels icky. It feels icky and it should. It's not, it's not good. It's not for you, right? Your job isn't to attune to your adult mother. You're supposed to be attuned to. And so for the orphan now as an adult to heal, they need good attunement, both their attunement to their, themselves and a sense of what's going on for me. Like I'm anxious. I'm scared. 
I'm lonely. I feel, you know, like whatever it is, like, can you read your own body and mind? And then also to be connected to other people to, for them to attune to you, but you're going to have to work through the feeling that that is dangerous and that you're suspicious of that person. But if you can attune to your own heart and say, okay, I'm receiving really good care. I feel suspicious. It's okay. Like breathe, you know, like it's okay that you're hypervigilant. We, I get it. I know our story, <laughs> you know, like a little self-talk of like, it's, you know, I understand why you're feeling this way. Can we take a deep breath and then, and then lean in anyways and do it anyways. And what that offers is then you move into this priestly category. And so when we talk about the three core heart wounds, we also talk about their inverse in the sense of, of when an orphan is healed, they're meant to be the priest. And so we talk about the priest, the prophet, and the king and queen as, as the, the inverses of the um, orphan, widow, and stranger. And the, the prophet, priest, and king and queen as categories are the perfect representation of Jesus and the stations of leadership within scripture. And so the role of the priest is the one who can attune, who attunes to the, the place that people are in, who helps tell the story of what's true and brings them into lament and gratitude and um, praise. And so the, the priest is meant to tell the whole story. And so the orphan is caught because they, are, they won't tell the full story of their harm because they're too busy being hypervigilant and taking care of themselves and cannot rest to actually tell the truth of the whole story. They fragment the story. They, they disperse it in their bodies. They don't want to know the whole thing because it's too difficult and, and too scary to actually name the truth of what's happened to them. Well, the priest is meant to tell the whole story and to create spaces of attunement and ritual and kindness and bringing our bodies back to ourselves in difficult moments and holding space for all of the orphans' fears and their hypervigilance, you know, but still bringing soothing and goodness to them. And so we talk about, you know, an orphan will need priests, other priests around them helping attune and tend to them. But as an orphan heals, they're also meant to move more into that priestly category to then help other people do that as well. How cool is that? So cool. Yes. And it's, and it's fun because it's like, you know, look, you, it's not to say that we just overcome our harm, but we get to then lean into it and say, no, there's another option. There's another option and there's more to this. And and I think that that is that is the redemptive arc of the gospel from my perspective. We got to spend a good amount of time talking about orphans, and we're still going to talk about the other two categories, strangers and widows. But if you really want to go deep, then please get the book Redeeming Heartache and engage with the Allender Center and come to some of their workshops because then you can spend the full amount of time going into all this amazing material. For now, tell us about The Stranger. Yeah. So the stranger's primary um, way of looking at the world is, is against. And, and so if, if the orphan is looking at like a protective model, the, strain, the stranger is looking at everything as, as like opposition. This is all against me. And so the core of the stranger, the strangers are, are a wonderful category because they are the feelers. And, and strangers often get the rap of being the anarchist but they're actually the empaths. They're the ones who see the world, who see what should be in the world and have been rendered powerless to do anything about it. 
And so a little boy who, who's in this stranger category is in a world where he sees beauty and goodness and what could be. And he's looking around and saying, how come none of the adults are doing anything about what's wrong? I know. I'll, t- I'll tell them what's wrong so that maybe they can click into what I'm seeing. But then when he engages them and says, mom, you know, dad, this is wrong. Or like, hey, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. Or shouldn't we? All of a sudden, they're like, shut the hell up. That's their response. Because the stranger is now exposing systems and things that they've all agreed to include it with. And they're, and they're, they're galvanized around this, this narrative that they're all living out that is harmful and destructive. And this little boy, this little stranger is saying, but, but, but this isn't the way it's supposed to be. And then when he realizes that no one is going to listen, no one is going to change, they then tell him he's the crazy one. You're the problem. If you would just get along the way that your older sister does. If you would just, you know, stop being so dramatic, um, you know, why are you being such a troublemaker, right? They then turn on their own hearts. They turn on the, the hearts around them, and then they go into exile, either emotional or actual exile if they, you know, run away or, or move. But there is an idea that, like, I'm, I'm seeing something that no one else is believing, so I am either crazy or a fool. Either way being connected to these people is is no longer an option so i'm going to blow it up and i'm and i'm going to leave you know either emotionally so these these are are the people who are the rebels who become addicts who you know are finding nothing of of goodness or listening to the truth in their families and so then they just are like fine here's the grenade and i'm going to blow it up this is the one that resonated the most with me personally and I found it also connected to not belonging or feeling like I do not belong. There are these friend groups at school. There are these people and I'm different. I'm an alien. I'm a foreigner. I I don't speak their language. Yeah. And, and that is the core category of, of stranger is not belonging because of all that you see. And, and so there's this sense of like, how come I'm the only one who sees all of this? How come I'm the only one who speaks a different language? How come no one else sees what I see? And so then you're kind of cast out outside the city gates to, to deal with life on your own. And, and there is such a deep isolation, such a deep anger and rage towards the world that doesn't want you. Um, and then you're, you have to figure out what to do with that. This one's hard for me to listen to. <laughs> this is just so close to home. Yeah. Well, and here's the beauty, the beautiful part about strangers. What strangers need, they need containment and they need connection. And they need someone to say, you actually are seeing the truth. But I'm not going to let you blow it all up. So I'm going to be with you as you rage, as you speak what you need to speak. But I'm also going to grab your hand and keep the pin of the grenade in the grenade. So like, as you feel all your feelings, we're going to ask you to go deeper into those feelings, understand the heartache, the truth that you're actually seeing, the fact that you see more truth of the world than the rest of us do. 
but not let you blow it up. So there's honor. There's honor for the stranger, right? Because so much of the stranger's life is dishonored. It's, it's chaos. It's, it's um, you know, creating chaos everywhere you go. And so the, the theme that you get as a stranger is like, you know, why can't you just change? Why can't you just be more settled, more, you know, whatever it is that, and, and just stop creating chaos. Like you are the problem. And, and in some ways there's a part of the stranger that has to understand, like you are, you are creating chaos, but do you know why? And do you know how to receive containment and soothing and honor in your own life, but then also welcome that from other people around you? And what the, the, the healed stranger actually becomes the prophet. And, and the prophet is a magnificent role in, in scripture, but also one that has a hard life. I mean, each priest has a hard life because they're meant to wrangle people's stories and tell them and, and help them remember. That's not an easy thing to do. But the prophet is exposing broken systems and things that need help, and, but they have an imagination for what could be. So they're the dreamers, they're the artists, they're the poets, they're the musicians, right? But that life, like how many musicians and artists and poets do you see that end up committing suicide? It's because they feel the world acutely and they don't know what to do with it. So they numb it. They numb it through addiction. They numb it through overworking. They, they numb it through, um, you know, di- just anything that's going to get them out. And so when you look even, you know, with pornography like that, look at where your stranger is so desperate for some sort of soothing or some so- something to connect to, that's going to be part of the impulse. That's going to be part of the, the system that's set up. And, and that's really important to see because that, but that can also give you like a more tender heart. And then also know you are seeing truth. So we need your voice. We need you to be connected. You're telling the truth. You're seeing something that's real, but we also need to help you contain it so that you're not blowing everything else up in the midst of it. <laughs> so that we're actually making it better. Yeah. And that's, and, and so prophets need to be connected to the priests and they need to be connected to the kings and the queens um, and, and those parts of, of themselves inside. So, you know, if you start to, to create a sense of Jesus was the perfect priest, prophet, and king, that was all inside of him. And we're meant to be more like Jesus. So there are people who are going to be stronger prophets, stronger priests, stronger kings and queens, but we're meant to cultivate all three within us. That's what maturity means. Awesome. So let's talk about the third one, the last one, the widow. Yes. So I don't know how you guys feel about um, people who just fall in love or get married. Um, I've been married for 12 years or 11, 11 years. <laughs> That's funny. Usually men are the ones to do for it. I think we've been married 11 years. With um, Marriage is hard. It's beautiful. It's good. It's hard. When I see newly minted couples who are like all super excited and lovey-dovey and like, you know, like everything's going to be great. We're going to do this differently than everyone. I have contempt. Something I have to work out in my own heart. Um, But the widow wound is the one that like looks at at that youngness, the, the place of like new delight and new connection and is like, you don't understand that death is on the way. That's the widow wound. The widow is the one who knows something of both the goodness of connection and mutuality and the fact that death is coming for you. 
And so now the widow is looking at, at the reality that they know, now know to be true and having to decide, will I love again? Will I risk again and work through my contempt, through my isolation, through withdrawing my heart, even though I understand that death is coming? Will I do both? And, and that's an important piece to, you know, and, th- and that can happen young. So that can happen for, for kids through divorce where they, they trusted that there was something good in their lives. They trusted that their, that their family was safe and that they could just rest and have delight. And then all of a sudden their world gets ripped apart. So now they know, oh, it's not safe. It's not, it's not good. And now I hate my delight. I hate the fact that I was tender and soft and connected and loved with my whole body. Now I feel ridiculous for doing that. And now I understand that death is coming. So there's a cynicism that's built into the widow, but also an isolation that that knows something of death. And the rest of us don't want to be around people who know about death. We don't like that. We want to believe that there's a way to avoid death. And a widow brings us face to face with that death. So not only is she isolated in her own heart, She's also then kind of shunned by the rest of the world because she knows something of suffering. And we don't want to know that. Um, But she also sees something of of the goodness of mutuality and delight and honor within the context of love that that is meant to bring goodness to the world. And so she's he, she, they're in a conundrum because they know death. But the problem is that we're still meant to create anyways. We're meant to love again. And if I understand you correctly, you can be a widow even if you've been single all your life. And that might actually be part of it, right? Yeah. And and so, you know, part of of even singleness is that, that sense of like, I was never chosen. And so there's that ache and that agony of like, you know, look, I, I I've desired this, I've longed for this, but now that part of me feels feels foolish. I've turned towards contempt for that part. And so I will just become icy and disconnected and, you know, productive and ruling my world in a way that, you know, is going to bring like, you know, something to, to this world. There's still kind of a creativity, but it's, but it's void of tenderness and delight and it's void of connection. And so I've been reading this book by Francis Weller, that's Wild Edges of, of Sorrow. I think it's what it's called, The Wild Edges of Sorrow. And he says three things. That I think are really true for for what we're talking about. One, you know, that goes to orphan. We will never be loved in the way we're meant to be loved. Like that's just true, and, and we have to sort out what that means for us while still holding our hearts tenderly and still working towards connection. Everything we love will die. Everything. The the the, the beautiful moments, the podcast worlds that we create, the organizations that we run. Our, our, the season of goodness will end in some sort of death. It is the cycle of life. And that's just what happens. The, the sweet moments of our marriages, the sweet moments with our kids, those will end in death. Um, it, and, and it's an awful part of our existence that we have to come to grips with and be able to have tenderness and grief towards. And, and the third one is that the world is far more broken and far more beautiful than we could ever imagine. And, and those three concepts are so important because when we, can, when we can understand that and rest into that, we actually stop fighting what's just going to be true about our lives. And we can start, so everything that I build from here on out 
I know will die. Every new relationship that I cultivate, there will be rupture. There will be moments of despair and disconnection and heartache between the two of us. And yet it doesn't mean that I am not meant to create and cultivate those deep, good connections. And so it's, it actually brings us into a place of such honor and such complexity, I think is so beautiful because, because we're meant to not turn our eyes away from the truth. We're meant to lean into that and, and cultivate bodies and minds that can grieve, that can move through trauma and, and that can become um, more whole, mature people in the face of all that's true about the world. We, we can't deny it. So how do we become people who can handle it? Specifically, what does that look like for the widow? So for the widow, that looks um, that you have to start to learn that repair is possible after rupture. And so that death is not the final answer. And, and that even in the midst of heartache, like you can still and are meant to still create, to still love, to build the next venture, to marry again, to love again, to open your heart and to come out of that icy space. And the way that that um, is, is, is brought into redemption is through the king and the queen. And the king and the queen are meant to bring flourishing and order and structure into this world where the prophet and the priest are invited in to do their work on behalf of the kingdom. The, the king holds that sense of like flourishing and honor in the, in the present moment and, and sets a table, sets a table of sensuality and tenderness and strength and is the one that will make the hard decisions, the hard yeses and the hard noes. And then be able to hold the weight of the moment. Because every time you say yes to something or you say no, it gives everyone else around you the opportunity to either be like, that's great decision, let's go. Or when it doesn't go well, they can then say, well, this is your fault. It's your fault. You said the yes or you said no. And now we're all stuck in in a bad decision. Well, the king is meant to hold the weight of that. But also know that like you repent first and you then move the community forward and, and keep making the decisions, knowing that part of the weight of the kingly calling is, is, to, is to bear difficulty and, and the connection between suffering and, and glory. Like, like those things that the, the king holds the tension between those things and knows that it's not one or the other. It's the both and. Um, and it's, and we need the king and, but also the king cannot be so wrapped up in their own power and their own need to be in control that they're, that they're grasping onto it with tight fists and then demanding that people follow a good king will be kind and tender and humble, but also not afraid of standing in the gap when it's needed. Prophet, priest, and king Mm -hmm. and queen and queen. That's the hope, right? That's the redemptive arc. Um, but you cannot skip over the grief and the reality of all of the things that we've talked about with orf- with prophet or sorry with orphan, stranger, and widow. You can't skip over that and go straight to prophet, priest, and king. And so often in our world, we want to skip the work. We want to skip da- going down into the bottom of of that grief cycle of understanding what actually happened and what got us to where we are, and then how we've joined. And, and then impacted other people in a harmful way. Like we want to avoid that and skip straight to redemptive Sunday. And we can't. 
We can't skip Good Friday. Can't. Or Thursday, which was a hot mess with everyone around a table with Jesus, you know, and betrayal and him still washing their feet anyways. Like that's, there's something like we can't skip Thursday. We can't skip Friday and we can't skip Saturday. And Saturday is the waiting where we're in agony and and there's loss. And, and then we don't know that Sunday is coming. We want to avoid all of that and go straight to Sunday. And it's and it's a it's a shallow faith. And it's not worthy of ourselves and it's not worthy of the God that we serve. Amen. So for somebody who's listening to you teach about this and wants to go deeper and they're ready to take this brave journey into grief, what should they do? I mean, you can go to the allendercenter.org website. And we have lots of offerings and online courses. I mean, the book, um, Redeeming Heartache, is a great place to start. And, and then if you want to know more about the work that I'm doing um, outside of the Allender Center, you can go to kathylorzell.com and all of my um, retreats and things are up there. And so those are, th- those are some resources. But more than anything, like find communities of people who believe that story matters and that you have to go back in order to go forward. And, and then if you don't find those communities, like find them outside of your hometown because they exist. And Allender Center, they have a list of all the therapists that you can see and, and workshops that you can attend. But you know, our role is really to, to just give voice to this and then also create resources and language so people can feel less alone and then feel like there's, there's a, a way to move forward. Thank you so much. You are so welcome. <laughs> it's great to be with you. It's great to be with you too. What is your favorite thing about healing? The freedom that comes from understanding fully who you are and who you're meant to be. That's it. Well, thank you so much for being with us. You're welcome. It's good to get to know you a little bit, Drew. Awesome. Gentlemen, we have been orphans. We have been strangers and widows. And we are all becoming priests, prophets, and kings through the true prophet, priest, and king, Jesus. Always remember, my friend, you are God's beloved son. In you, he is well pleased.